Hey, um, it's so good to be with you this morning. <laughs> um, yep, I don't know if I'll ever live that name down now, Dr. Sun. Um, I haven't actually finished my PhD yet, so, you know, stave it off for a few more, few more years. Um, but yeah, great to see you. Um, warm welcome to everyone online um, as we gather this morning. Um, one of my favourite novels ever is one written by Wendell Berry, and it's called Jaber Crow. And it's set in this fictional town by the Kentucky River uh, in the States. And the story's told from the perspective of Jaber, who's now an older man, and uh, he had been the town's barber, right at the heart of kind of the hustle and bustle and the gossip and the life of the community. But now he lives by the river, um, and he has this kind of idyllic life. Um, and especially at weekends, visitors come to this river where he lives. And he just narrates this little moment of them coming and arriving uh, into his paradise, into this little space where he's retired. And he says this. He says, On pretty weekends, weekends in the summer, the riverbank is the very verge of the modern world. It's a seat in the front row, you might say. On those weekends, the river is disquieted from morning to night by people resting from their work. This resting involves traveling at great speed, first on the road and then on the river. The people are in an emergency to relax. They long for the peace and quiet of the great outdoors. Their eyes are hungry for the scenes of nature. They go very fast in their boats. They stir the river like a spoon in a cup of coffee. They play their radios loud enough to hear above the noise of their motors. They look neither left nor right. They don't slow down for or maybe even see an old man in a rowboat raising his lines. The fishermen have the fastest boats of all. Their boats scarcely touch the water. They have much equipment, thousands of dollars worth. They can't fish in one place for fear that there are more fish in another place. For rest, they have perfect restlessness. Now, Jaber's observation is so rich and descriptive. He emphasizes the speed and the longing and the hunger to find rest. And there's a great deal of irony in those words, aren't there? This idea that the people are in an emergency to relax. I love that line. That's one of my favorites. Um, but the first time I read this section, I had to put the book down and I had to take a breather. Uh, the words got to something at the very core of me. I can absolutely relate to the irony of being in an emergency to relax. Can anyone else relate to that? Being in an emergency to relax. Um, these words highlight the, the pace of modern life and the intensity in contrast with Jaber's peaceful riverside existence. But part of me also felt angry at Jaber. I felt miffed by it when I first read it. I thought it's easy for him. He retires by the river and gardens and walks and puts out his fishing lines. Everyone else is busy working, paying the bills. Um, of course, they're pressed for time. But then on a deeper reading, I think what Wendell Berry is getting at, it's, it's actually less about simple busyness versus speed. And it's much more about a posture, about a way of doing things, a way of interacting with the world. Both Jaber and the weekenders love fishing. They have that in common. But there's two different approaches. The people coming to the river in the weekends are there to use it. They want to impose their will upon it, in a sense, with their machines and their timetables, um, and from Jaber's perspective, there's a sense of control in what they're doing. In contrast, Jaber's posture is a receptive one. He encounters the river as a gift in which he delights. It's not something he seeks to control or exploit for his own purposes. Rather, he encounters it. And so this idea of posture, 
there's one that I want us to explore um, this morning. Currently, we're going through the series uh, in the book of Exodus and also alongside the practice of Sabbath. And this morning, we're going to reflect on the question, what does it mean to embrace a posture of delight in life, of delight in God? And we're going to be exploring that from a story in Exodus. So I'd like to invite uh, Sarah forward. Uh, She's going to come and read us the section of Exodus chapter 32. So this morning we're reading from Exodus 32, verses 1 to 14, the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from them, formed them in a mould, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. And together we pray. Glory Glory be to the the Father, Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, as as it was in the beginning, beginning, is now, now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So um, let's just take a moment uh, to pray as we reflect on the scriptures together. Lord, we give you thanks that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. 
We pray that you'd speak to us afresh as we reflect on the story today in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I can think of no better way to describe this moment, this golden calf story, than to say it's a real face palm moment. It's like, oh, you know, really? How did this happen? Um, as we've explored uh, over the past few weeks, God has delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, the story's been miraculous. The people have been delivered out of the hands of oppression. The waters of the Red Sea have been parted. Uh, there was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. God has been with them and has been leading them. And then Moses, who's been leading the people, pops out for a moment and uh, has a conversation with God. And he comes back, and with Aaron's help, the people have melted down all their gold and jewelry, turned it into a calf, built an altar for it, and are worshipping it. And it's like, oh dear, like, how do we get there? How do we go from here to there? Um, it's one of those moments where you ask the question, what's going on here? It's one of those moments that, from the outside of the story, it's pretty easy for us to point the finger and say, what a bunch of Muppets. What were they thinking? But if we take a moment with the story and let it speak to us, actually we're likely to see that it's a lot closer to home than we might think. So what's going on in the story? Well, I think the context and the setting is really important itself. Uh, right before this moment is narrated in the book of Exodus, from chapters 25 through to 30, there's this long list of detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. It's really exciting. You can read that. There's a long list of detailed instructions. Um, and God gives these instructions to Moses and says, this is what I want you to do with the people to construct a place where you can worship me. And so it's ironic, as soon as we see this set of instructions happening, straight after it, the next thing that happens in the story is that the people take on a building project, but it's not the one God's given them. Instead of building this tabernacle to worship God, it's a fashioning of this golden calf, shaping uh, an idol, making an altar, and worshiping it instead. And so the story of the golden calf is really a kind of parody of the worship that God has asked of the people as he's instructed Moses to build a tabernacle. And so God is providing worship for the people, providing a way to do it, and they construct their own. And so I think reading the story alongside the story of the tabernacle uh, and the, building, uh, the instructions for it unveils the clash here between God's plans, God's agenda for uh, the people and the people's desire to make their own plans. The tabernacle and then later on the temple acts as a kind of microcosm of what God intended the whole creation to be, a place of worship full of his presence in which humanity would be in right relationship with God and reflect God's image and goodness into the world. But the story of the fall that occurs in the opening story of Genesis, um, here goes Dr. Sin, um, going back to that story, um, but it's an important story. Coming back to Genesis uh, is one in which humanity push beyond the limits that God has set for them. And they seek to order life not around God, but rather place themselves at the heart of, of the agenda for creation, at the heart of life, the center of reality. And so the rejection of God's design for the tabernacle and the people setting their own agenda with the calf echo the story of Genesis in which Adam and Eve assert their own independence and say, we're going to do things our way. And many biblical scholars actually recognize that here in Exodus 32, we see a recreation of the fall narrative in Genesis 3. This moment could even be described as the fall of Israel. 
In Exodus 32, the people are setting their agenda by doing worship their way. Not as God has ordered it, but as they saw fit. And in doing so, they commit idolatry, failing to worship the God who created them and rescued them and setting for something that will actually lead them away from life. So I think we actually see idolatry expressed in two ways in Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to explore them uh, briefly this morning. One is worshipping the created instead of the creator. It's a really kind of basic way of defining idolatry. And the second is objectifying the creator and worshipping a god in our own image. So the first one, worshipping the created instead of the creator. This first form is exposed in the story uh, as we see the people worship the calf. This kind of idolatry really is expressed in worshipping anything other than God, anything other than the creator. And it goes far beyond carved images. We kind of have to get out of that space of just thinking it's about you know, a golden calf. Um, but actually, some fairly common idols are money, um, sex, power, um, you know, created things that we make uh, ultimate, that we make an idol and we essentially worship. And this worship is ultimately frustrating, ultimately unfulfilling, and leads us away from life in its fullness because we're not designed to worship these created things. And last week, Sam highlighted this. He talked about the important theological distinction between creator and creature, or creator and creation. God is not a bigger version of us. He's not the most powerful thing amongst a host of various powerful things. He's completely other to all creatures. He's the very source of life, the very source of all that exists, the creator himself. And oddly enough, my kids have been working out this distinction at the moment around our breakfast table. I I don't know how these conversations happen. Um, I don't know if they've been into my books on the bookshelf or what, but um, we had this conversation recently, um, so some theology with a six-year-old. Esther said this. She said, Jesus made everything. He made our house and our toys. We were talking about what can we be thankful for. I said, yeah, okay. Uh, And Phoebe said, this is our older child who's 10, no, he didn't. Builders make houses, and toys were made by people too. Esther paused for a moment, thought about it, and then she offered her a bottle. She said, yes, but Jesus made the builders. I was like, oh, wow, good on you. Oh, my goodness. Esther gets to the heart of the matter, really, here, talking about uh, the difference between the creator as distinct from created things. This distinction is a really important one in theology, and to worship Anything in creation really is to commit an idolatry which will never satisfy. I think it's a really big point to understand, uh, important point to understand because we're designed uh, for a relationship with our creator to worship him alone. So idolatry can look like that. But there's a second and I think much more subtle element to the story of the golden calf and it's the thing I really want to emphasize this morning. And it's that there's this move here of objectifying the creator and the temptation actually to worship a God of our own making, a God in our own image. And in making the golden calf, actually the Israelites are making a power move. They're seeking control, something attainable, something that they can constantly see and touch and bow down to. And I actually think as well as this, there might also be an element of finding comfort, of predictability, of solace. The idol itself, a bull or a calf, was a familiar um, image for a god in ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, including the Egyptian culture. 
And so it's hard to actually know the motives of the Israelites. Um, but perhaps there's some sense of comfort or, or stability or solace or something like that. Uh, the story begins with a clue, actually. We read this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You can kind of hear in that line, eh? we, don't know, we don't know what's become of him, what's going on. There seems to be fear perhaps lurking in the narrative. Moses is delayed. The people are wondering what's happening. There's uncertainty. And in that moment, they think, all right, well, we'll take things into our own hands. We'll take control. We'll make a move. And so they fashion this golden calf. They objectify God. And this moment of idolatry is just a disastrous uh, turn in the story. It's disastrous for several reasons. First of all, the objectifying of God is in direct contradiction to God's command to the people, which was this, you shall not make yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that's in heaven above, or that's in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. So first of all, um, this is pushing back on God's instructions for worship and life. Um, God sets the terms for his worship because God wants people to engage him. God wants to engage relationally. He wants people to know the true and living God. And if we create a God in our own image, we turn the I am revealed to Moses uh, into us, into an it. Yeah, we turn the I am into an it. And in doing so, we actually end up worshipping a false God who becomes a commodity or a means to an end rather than the biblical God who's invited us to relate to him and worship. I think it's a really important um, point to kind of understand um, that, that, that turning of God into I, I am into an it is a really problematic move. But secondly, this very objectification is the thing that Pharaoh had done to the Israelites themselves. They were not seen by Pharaoh as human persons worthy of love and respect, but rather were objectified, first of all as cogs in a machine to build the Egyptian empire, and then secondly as threatening foreigners who need to be destroyed. And so this kind of dehumanizing objectification of humans flows from this worldview that, um, yeah, that objectifies uh, God and also people as it rather than I. And so this is what happened in our story from Exodus. And I think it's actually something that's tempting for us to do as well. We're not, we're not going to probably, I speak for myself on this one, but I think you'll probably be the same, not going to jump and fashion a golden calf anytime soon. Um, you know, the moment we find ourselves in existential angst, you know, quick, get the earrings. Um, but <laughs> we might just find ourselves conjuring up all kinds of images of God all, all kinds of ways of thinking about God, um, inventing a God that allays our fears, one that won't, won't demand too much of us, conjuring a God of our own imagination or from fragments of our experience or our upbringing or our religious frameworks. Um, there are all kinds of ways we might do that. And the preposition that we use to describe our relationship with God actually says a lot about the kind of God that we worship. And it has... Um, a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in exploring this. So um, there's a pastor and writer, a guy called Sky Jathani, who's written this book simply titled With. And he explores this notion of the prepositions we use to describe our relationship to God. And he describes five ways of relating to God, and I found these quite helpful. Um, he talks about life from God, life over God, life 
for God, life under God, and life with God. And so the first of these is the idea of life from God. And he says people in this category want God's blessings, but they're not particularly interested in God himself. So it's this idea of what can God, like, give me? What can I get from God? And he says we might end up with an image of God as a kind of divine butler. Um, so <laughs> life from God. Um, the second one uh, that he, he talks about is life over God. And so it's where we position ourselves in a certain way where the mystery and wonder of the world is lost as God is abandoned in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes. In other words, we stand over God, we set the kind of agenda, and I think we see this happening in the, in the golden calf story. And in this kind of uh, way of relating, God becomes a divine coach who helps us achieve um, the, you know, our own aims and goals and agendas in life. God becomes our divine coach. The third uh, way of relating he talks about is life for God. And he says, the most significant life is the one expended accomplishing great things in God's service, doing lots of things for God. This idea uh, might conjure up the image of God as a divine employer. The fourth uh, posture he talks about is this idea of life under God. And he says, the, yeah, before we go, um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, he sort of sees God, uh, this view sees God in simple cause and effect terms. Uh, we obey God's commands and he blesses our lives, our families, our nation. And so in this image, um, God becomes a kind of divine police officer. And as long as we keep everything, um, you know, keep everything right, it will go well. But he talks about the final um, posture um, in, in his book that he emphasizes, and this is the idea of life with God. And life with God is all about relationship. In life with God, we do not seek to use God to achieve another goal. In life with God, God is the goal. God becomes our treasure and our desire. And, you know, we understand that God is divine community and that, you know, uh, we're, we're created for relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But do any of these resonate with you? I mean, can you identify with kind of employing some of these postures toward God? I mean, I certainly can. Um, and, and I hope that we can sort of recognize where we're at with that. Um, but Exodus is this book that illustrates God's commitment to being with his people. God's commitment to being with his people. As we read it today, may we hear God's commitment to being with us. The idea is actually explicit in the sermon series, the title of it, um, that we're journeying through Exodus, living with and in the presence of God. And in the story of the golden calf, we actually see this dynamic of living with God crop up in the conversation between God and Moses that happens after the event of bowing down and worshipping the calf. God is angry with the people, and Moses has a conversation and implores God not to abandon the people. And it's this audacious moment, this audacious move where Moses actually recognises the relationship that God has with Israel. You know, hey, we've got a relationship here. The promises you've made to bless us are still good, right? God, don't, don't turn your face from us. And he engages, he intercedes for, uh, on, on behalf of the people. And I think this is this amazing relational response to the conflict going on, one where Moses appeals to God's mercy and goodness. The people will face judgment. They will face consequences for their rejection of God. 
We see that unfold in the story and right through the Bible uh, as God's people really struggle to be faithful. And this is true in our stories too. And yet, God's promise remains. If we flick forward a couple of chapters in our Bible, in Exodus 34, we read about God renewing the covenant with the people. And in this uh, passage, we actually hear of the character of God. God is described as the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here we see God's character toward his people, one which is gracious and faithful and merciful. And in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John, John actually picks up that language from Exodus. We read this, The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And this phrase, full of grace and truth, this phrase is one of the ways that the Greek version of the Old Testament translates the phrase love and faithfulness found in Exodus. So there's a kind of link here with language. And I think the point John makes is that Jesus is the incarnate God described in Exodus 34. Jesus, God in Christ, comes in person to dwell with, to dwell with. Here we see that in John. And not only to dwell with, but to bear the punishment for the sins of humanity. That word sin being shorthand for rejection, rebellion, idolatry, turning away from God, and then all of the consequences that flow from that um, broken relationship. But the good news here is that even when we turn away, even when we desperately try and fashion gods in our own image, the true and living God reveals himself to us in Christ, comes to be with us in the person of Jesus Christ, offering us forgiveness and reconciliation. So God's posture towards his people is one of faithful love and persistence. What about us? What about us this morning? What about our posture? To come back to the story of Jabah and the river, his posture was one of receptivity, to see the river as a gift, not something to be controlled or exploited. And I think the lesson in his observation as we relate to God is the invitation for us to have a posture of receptivity, a posture that's open-handed to receive the gift that God wants to give us. Because in fact, it's all gift. We can't contribute to our creation. Our very existence is gift. We can't contribute to our salvation. It's God's initiative through Jesus that brings new creation as well. It's all grace. It's all gift. Christian thinker Christopher Watkin puts it beautifully. He says this, What deal can we strike with God when he gives us everything we have? The Bible's picture of human beings is not as wheelers and dealers in the corporate boardroom signing contracts with the gods or ultimate reality in order to get ahead. Instead, we're joyful children on Christmas morning, receiving unexpectedly lavish gifts from loving parents. Free gift, not contractual obligation, is at the heart of the Bible's picture of reality, just as it's at the heart of the Bible's picture of redemption. I love that. This idea of just really leaning into the idea of gift. And as a church community, we've been exploring the practice of Sabbath, and I think nothing is better than this practice at actually reorienting our hearts to see life as gift, to delight in the world that God has made, 
and to delight in God, our Creator and our Redeemer. The practice of Sabbath is, of course, the practice of stopping, of taking a day of rest each week, but it's more than stopping. Of course, it's a practice of rest, you know, being able to kind of go, but it's actually more than rest. It's an invitation to incline our hearts toward God, to delight in Him, to worship Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, The German theologian Eberhard Jungel, he says this, In worship, God becomes of interest to us for his own sake. As the eternally creating Father, as the Son who for our sake suffered and conquered death, as the Holy Spirit who links Father and Son to each other in the bond of love and links us into the divine fellowship of mutual otherness. And as God becomes of interest to us for his own sake, We also learn to discover the world as his creation and ourselves as his children. And then he goes on to say this, people who take no delight in the existence given them are by definition not Christians. It's a big, big line. He says, instead of being those who do and have, can we ever again become those who are, those who stand amazed at themselves? Can we ever rediscover ourselves as God's children? as newborn children who can contribute absolutely nothing toward their own existence. I think there's something in there that's the heart of the invitation this morning. And with that invitation ringing in our ears, let's just take a moment to pray. Let me pray as we finish. Glory to God on high, God of power and might. You are our God. We can neither add to your glory nor take away from your power. Yet we will wait upon you daily in prayer and praise. And that is what we're here to do this morning. Amen.